0: Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. This week on Seven Heads, Ten Horns, we will be talking about demonic possession. How and why does the devil possess human beings? We will take a look at some critical texts from the Gospels, as well as do a deeper dive into the early modern period and look especially at an incident involving some French nuns in a town called Loudun in the 17th century. We'll finish up with some reflections on the 1970s horror film The Exorcist. A couple of scenes from the Gospels will help establish certain precedents for demonic possession that recur later in the tradition. The first such scene comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. In it, Jesus meets a man who lives among the tombs, a man whose thrashing limbs Can't be bound by chains, who roams the cemetery, beating himself with stones and howling to the skies. When Jesus arrives, the man bows before him, and the demons within him confess that Jesus is Son of the Most High God. The demons say that their name is Legion, for we are many. Then the demons proceed to negotiate. Rather than leave entirely, they beg to be allowed to enter a nearby herd of pigs. Jesus consents, the demons enter the pigs, and the pigs run off the cliff into the sea where they meet their watery end. From this story, we see Jesus exercising divine power as he exercises the demons, forgive the pun. We also see the recurring trope of the demon who is compelled by the exorcist to tell the truth, to witness to something that is true. Another key to understanding this story is the theme of colonialism. Palestine, at the time, was ruled by Roman forces, so the word legion here would call to mind these military occupiers. In fact, the troops stationed in Galilee at the time bore a standard emblazoned with, you guessed it, the image of a boar. The death of the pigs by drowning would have reminded the audience, the Jewish audience in particular, of a detail from the book of Exodus. After Moses parted the waters for his people to pass through, the Red Sea rushed back over Pharaoh's army. Just another army of pigs defeated by God's mighty hand, they might think. But this is also a link between the demons of the New Testament on the one hand, and Pharaoh as a kind of demonic precursor, on the other hand, from the Hebrew Bible. Our second gospel scene also comes from Mark, this time from chapter 3 and it's retold in Luke chapter 11. The act of casting out demons was understood by some interpreters in this period as tapping into a supernatural power source. When Jesus of Nazareth performs public exorcisms, the scribes in Mark chapter 3 and anonymous members of the crowd in the gospel of Luke want to know by whose power and in whose name is Jesus performing these exorcisms. Rumor has it that he's doing it in the name of the ruler of the demons, Beelzebul or Beelzebub, a name that appears in the Hebrew Bible and appears to derive from a Philistine deity, which got turned into a demon by neighboring nations, according to the common trope wherein people demonize the deities of nearby nations, of their enemies. Jesus denies that he is, in fact, invoking Satan's power, arguing, quote, If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. End quote. In the parallel story in Luke, Jesus suggests that it is God rather than Satan who grants him the power to exercise demons. There's a conflict here. On the one hand, demons cause suffering of various types seizures, blindness, and deafness, to name a few. But demons also grant powers and there's a suspicion of the figure of the exorcist of being in league with the powers he purports to oppose. In this story, the question is whether the power of commanding demons to leave the body of the afflicted, that is the power to perform an exorcism, is itself furnished by demons. Later, this question will take the form, is he exercising or is he invoking demons? Both situations betray an unease with the act of exorcism. In the High Middle Ages, a change took place in the way saints became saints. Rather than popular acclamation, for example, the way Beyoncé became a saint, a church court would call witnesses in a manner not dissimilar from Inquisition trials. The same sort of procedure for fact-finding and verification could end in your being declared either a saint or a heretic. In 1330, one of these canonization trials began. That's the ecclesiastical legal proceeding attempting to determine sanctity. In this case, it was for a man named Yves Elory In one portion of the trial, we learn about another man named Yves, Yves of Tréguier, whose demonic possession would ultimately be healed by Yves Elory the saint under investigation in the trial. Six witnesses attested to the following scene. Eve of Tréguier's mother, Ironice, fell to her knees, pulled out her breasts, and said to her son, I curse you with these breasts that you have sucked and with my belly that carried you and with every right over you that I have, everything I have engendered in you, I deliver and grant everything to the devil. With that, Eve became uncontrollably violent. Four women were not sufficient to hold him down in his fits. Two goat-shaped black demons attempted to abscond with him. It's clear that his mother's words had been enough on their own power to cause his demonic possession. In the speech act theory of J.L. Austin, the mother's words constituted what he coined as performative. They are words that do something. The legal force of her words while contested by St. Eve, according to at least one of the witnesses, is central to how relations to the devil were perceived in the Middle Ages, particularly through what became known as the Devil's Pact, a central feature of witchcraft trials throughout the early modern period. This act of donation, in which Ironice gives her son to Satan, can only be undone by divine intervention by the saint. That's how seriously they took this idea of the legal pact. Although Eve of Treguier's friends and family have bound and gagged him to prevent him from blaspheming, which was an act that was super common among people who were possessed, Eve manages nonetheless to communicate to them that he wants to devote himself to the saint. As in the story of the Gerozine demoniac from Mark chapter 5, the setting here is a grave, this time the grave of Saint Eve where Eve of Treguier asks for the saint's intercession. Through that act of self-will, in cooperation with the help of Saint Yves, Elory begins his path to healing. Demonic possession did not always have such a happy ending, however. The troubles began in the French town of Loudun in the wake of an outbreak of plague. Doctors had long since fled the town since curing the plague was beyond their skill. The nobility, and anyone with relations in the countryside likewise left. Nuns sequestered themselves from outside visitors to stay safe. Just as this wave of disease and destruction began to subside, a new drama emerged around the community of Ursuline nuns and the figure of the relatively new priest in town, Rubin Condier, who had himself never met the nuns. Grandier was a somewhat shady figure for a few major reasons. He had gotten Philippe Trinquant pregnant. And, while clerical celibacy was the norm for Catholic priests, Grandier had written against celibacy in a treatise designed to persuade his lover at the time, Madeleine de Brou, of consenting to marry him in secret. Such goings-on were not beyond the pale in 17th century France and do not on their own explain the targeting of Grandier that would eventually take place. His politics, however, were a likelier source of contempt in certain powerful circles of church and state, forces that would have necessarily had to unite against him to cause his demise. What actually happened at Ludum? The Ursline sisters at Ludum began showing signs of unusual and nefarious spiritual activity, visions of clergymen seducing them, sightings of the ghost of their recently deceased father confessor, such that rumors began circulating that the nuns were possessed by demons, and a flurry of local authorities were called in to investigate, Canon Jean Mignon, the new chaplain of the convent, but also Pierre Barret, who was a specialist in exorcisms and a priest from a nearby town. Those two were the initial leaders, but later local dignitaries, medical doctors, and even Baron Le a centralist empowered by Richelieu to investigate the crimes of Grandier and the possession of the nuns. This was extraordinarily convenient for Le who could use the possession to knock out an opponent to his and Richelieu's political program, and in so doing, discourage others from resistance. The central drama took place in the form of a series of investigations and trials to determine the cause of the nun's extraordinary behavior. During the course of the interrogations, which moved from inside a church eventually to the public square, extraordinary symptoms of demonic possession were on display as a kind of spectacle. Medical science battled theology to explain the strange speech and behavior of the sisters. The nuns recounted tales of evil spirits who threw nuns to the ground and struck their legs three cursed thorns appeared in the hand of one of the nuns. Sisters were thrown into fits of unknown origin. The attempted exorcism of the nuns produced little more than a spectacle. Convulsive flesh, gnashing teeth, and tongues sticking out. The possessed sisters showed the ability to speak Latin, which they supposedly had not studied. Never mind that their psalter and prayers were in that language, so they must have known at least rudimentary Latin. When questioned about who had caused their possession, the Urslines gave various answers, but eventually settled on the priest, Urbain Condier. The questioning produced what were becoming standard elements of demonic possession initiated by sorcery, but more than that, a scripted drama was emerging, based largely on the published history of a previous episode from another French town, including the episode with the thorns, the types of bodily contortions of the nuns, and the names of the main demons. Also, the way in which the demons could be commanded by exorcists to give little pious speeches, each of these elements had already emerged in these accounts that had been published of previous episodes of demonic possessions in France in the early 17th century. Each of the players, the local dignitaries, the sisters, and the audience, took up their parts as the net progressively tightened around the scapegoat for the whole affair, Urbain Grandier, who would in 1634 be burned at the stake for having cast a spell leading to the nun's possession. Many historians have blamed politics for what took place. Towns in 17th century France often had fortifications dating from times of more local autonomy. In the nationalist fervor under Louis XIII, represented principally by Cardinal Richelieu, these walls and towers became symbols of local resistance to centralized governance and were ordered to be taken down, including those at Loudun. Grandier successfully petitioned to save the tower, though he could not keep the town walls from going down, and eventually the tower itself was also demolished. Why did the nuns care about Grandier in particular? They had, after all, never met him. Was the famously handsome man who had broken his vow of celibacy, the object of repressed sexual longing by a group of celibate nuns whose average age was about 25, as Ken Russell's 1971 film, The Devils, based on Aldous Huxley's book, suggests? Were the nuns overtly or indirectly pressured to target him because of his politics by church and state authorities? What of the Catholic Huguenot divide in the town? It was a border town, an outpost of Protestant Huguenots surrounded by Catholic territory that had itself recently become recolonized, so to speak, by Catholics. Exorcism, nuns, and priestly celibacy were all points of contention in this widening conflict, though a realignment was going on after the wars of religion of the previous century, in which the more important fault line was no longer religious, but was concerned with local autonomy versus stronger centralized government. That said, the missionaries from various religious orders, including the Ursulines, were there in part to reassert Catholicism, and this controversy turned on deeply Catholic elements, and thus can be read as a doubling down of Catholicity in the face not only of Protestantism, but also of new ways of thinking about the relationship between the natural and supernatural worlds. Was the testimony of the nuns to be believed, or were their symptoms merely impostures, as local rumor claimed? In other words, were the only two options for interpreting this phenomenon either witchcraft-induced demonic possession or fraud, or were there other explanations possible? The testimony of the Protestant medical doctors was meant to vouchsafe that there was no natural cause of the symptoms, however, the very fact that they needed to be consulted was already a conceit to new explanatory possibilities afforded by developments in early modern medicine. There were also hints of new understandings of what counted as proof of demonic possession. Rather than simply match symptoms to New Testament accounts of possession, the exorcists, for example, asked the nuns to read their minds and to speak complete sentences in several languages they had never studied. We could detect in these kinds of tests a suspicion about the authenticity of their performances and a distinct raising of the bar as to what should count as incontrovertible proof of possession. Despite these doubts and lingering tensions, however, Grandier was successfully tried and executed for bewitching the nuns. The convenience of witchcraft-induced demonic possession was that it afforded the town the possibility of absolving not only the rowdy sisters of any responsibility for their sexually charged misbehavior, but also the town for creating a spectacle out of it, the medical professionals for not diagnosing a natural illness to explain it, and the politicians for executing a handsome and popular cleric who had become a thorn in the sign of Richelieu and by proxy, His Majesty the King. The devil emerged in the early modern period as adept in law and politics, charting these episodes of demonic possession shows the ways in which society's transformations with regard to truth and knowledge in the wake of humanist and scientific achievements of the Enlightenment and the Renaissance, rather than banishing the devil, merely provided him with new fields of play. So last week, we were talking about the cosmic monsters that threatened divine sovereignty. This week, we are addressing an evil entity that walks among us in human form, the demonically possessed. But this form of evil also suggests a protagonist, the exorcist, the one who drives the demon out.
1: One thing we know is that Jesus didn't invent exorcism. This was a practice that could be found in ancient Mesopotamia, Zoroastrianism, which in turn influenced late antique Judaism so that we see possession being referenced in apocryphal books of the Bible, such as Tobit, as well as in the Dead Sea Scrolls of the community at Qumran, which existed around the rise of Jesus's ministry. Exorcism rites might involve fumigation, singing away the malevolent spirits with a library of incantations, or a kind of spiritual divorce, or get inscribed in magic bowls. Perhaps these were intended to trap or at least transport the spirits involved. Possession was a phenomenon known to ancient Greece, yet Greeks and Romans seemed suspicious of exorcists, characterizing them as Eastern, foreign, and often associated with quackery and charlatanism. The spread of Christianity itself brought the role of the exorcist into Europe, but it was a role that remained contested even inside the earliest Christian communities.
0: Yeah, you can see this reflected in the way exorcism is shown to be central to Jesus's ministry in the Gospel of Mark on the one hand, And on the other hand, in the Gospel of John, the battle between Jesus and the demons is marginalized in favor of a more philosophical and internal encounter with the truth, capital T. Exorcism possesses, if you will, a different level of prestige depending on the time and place. It also doesn't map neatly onto geography or social class. Some wealthy communities of gospel followers downplay it while others celebrate its power. By the second century CE, Exorcism became incorporated into the initiation rite, baptism, also known as illumination. The magic of the cosmic battle gets a bit routinized in the ritual. According to autobiographical remarks by the Alexandrian Christian philosopher and convert Justin Martyr, battling demons through exorcism meant a confrontation with the status quo of imperial pagan Roman culture. But it also meant displacing the demons within, the bad habits and states of mind developed. By Roman culture. In this way, exorcism fluctuates between a power encounter and a more internalized, reflective transformation of the self through exposure to the gospel.
1: One more thing I think we should note is that in contrast to other forms of exorcism that had currency in the late antique Mediterranean world, the form of exorcism recorded in the synoptic gospels Almost no ritual apparatus and depends less on the personal charisma of the exorcist and more on the appeal to a higher power, namely the Holy Spirit. After the ascent into heaven, Jesus's followers would exercise demons, quote, in the name of Jesus, as Jesus teaches them to do in Mark 9, again invoking a higher power and channeling the presence of Christ slash the Holy Spirit, rather than re- relying on their own personal qualities. On the one hand, this obviously is consistent with the piety building up around the figure of Jesus, but it is also resembles the methods that appear in some of the papyri of ancient Greek magicians, which involve exorcists being aided by a god who might work as the power source for the procedure. There's some old cloth in the new garment of Christian exorcism.
0: Okay, so we've seen the place of exorcism in the New Testament and early Christianity but let's take a moment to talk about how this practice, which comes and goes throughout the history of Christianity, fits into some important theological ideas.
1: Yeah, one of the ideas that we've been keeping up with is this question of moral responsibility. And so the way this matters here is like, if someone gets possessed, did they do something to deserve this? Do they consent or set up their possession in some way? And the example I'm thinking of is, the case that you talked about, Travis, uh, from 17th century Loudon, where Saint Jean des Anges admits that her own disposition contributed to the problem of possession. She has a new spiritual director, an exorcist, this father, Lactance, uh, and he orders that communion is, is going to be done in a new way in this convent. And she explains that her annoyance and desire to frustrate the priest puts her in a bad position to resist the devil who's already dwelling inside of her and to quote her when i went to take communion the devil seized my head and after i had received the holy host and half moistened it the devil threw it into the priest's face i know i know perfectly well that i did not perform that act freely but i am very sure to my great embarrassment that i gave the devil occasion to do it and that he would not have had this power had i not allied myself with him there's also this case of young Eve from Tregue where his mother, you know, Eve's mother donates his body and soul to the devil. We I mean, have this question of like what, what sets this up? What did Eve do to put himself in this position? We have Eve, we have we have we have Jean like these these are examples where people are you know or it seemed to be putting themselves in the position to take responsibility for demonic possession. So like, what what are we supposed to make of this idea of moral possession or moral responsibility for possession, Travis?
0: I think it tracks differently in different times and places. Um, So it's important to look back to New Testament examples for a kind of root here, but then watch as it changes in different ways. So in Jesus's exorcisms, especially in the Gospel of Mark, that question of moral responsibility is really completely ignored. And you just mm-hmm. have people in need who mm-hmm. whom Jesus ministers to. Use <laughs> to <his> very <laughs> churchy language, right? But what I mean by that is that there's a kind of parallel between the healings that he performs, the miraculous healings on the one hand, and the exorcisms on the other. They're both spectacular. They're both Miracle working. They're both designed to help people move from a bad state to a good state Mm -hmm. without necessarily blaming the people who are in the state to start with. It might be interesting to think more about the category of sin in the Gospel of Mark um, and look at the sinners he sort of hangs out with and compare to the people he heals and the people who are possessed by demons to get further at the question. But that's sort of a beginning of it. I think it's important if we Mm. step back from it. We can say that there's no clear blame that's being laid. There's no clear moral responsibility on the possessed in those examples. Mm
1: -hmm. Are there examples later on where moral responsibility does not rest with the possessed?
0: Yeah, definitely. There's a particular kind of possession where you have a witch involved, the kind of what I call the witch induced demonic possession. And Mm. in that case, there's generally no moral responsibility on the part of the possessed. It all shifts to the witch who caused it all. So at Ludin, it's that evil priest, right, who caused the demonic possession. And that's what's a little complicated with the Jean Desanges example that you gave. She takes responsibility, but remember that that's well after the fact. In the judicial, juridical moment, that happens at the time, it's very clear that the sisters are not blamed by the community, that there is one scapegoat who takes the fall, right? So that's the witch-induced demonic possession. Uh, You can even get sympathy for the people who have been possessed in an instance like that. On the other hand, if absent a witch, absent a sorcerer, demonic possession can be your fault. But isn't necessarily, and you see examples on both sides, with, you mentioned Eve of Tréguier, at the the beginning of one of the witness accounts, you get an interesting and somewhat ambiguous clue that in his mother's speech to him in which she curses her son, she also says, why did you defame me? Mm -hmm. Pointing to some possible accountability on his side maybe he said something bad about his mother and it's really his fault that his mother then curses him. So, you know, it's not totally clear then, Um, but he appeals to the saint, goes to the grave, right. And is able to achieve his own salvation in the end. Mm -hmm. And then moving to the exorcist, right. You have Reagan, this, you know, pre-adolescent, adolescent, um, girl who seems to have no moral responsibility at all, and this is one of our kind of famous 20th century cinematic depictions of possession and exorcism, there's no emphasis that she was bad, right? She, there, there are questions that are left open, like, where does she learn all that foul language that she spews forth, this sheltered, privileged, rich, white, Catholic girl, daughter mm-hmm. of a movie star maybe from the ouija board stuff? i don't know well maybe, maybe from ouija her ouija mom board. cussing out oh. <laughs> her husband on the phone That's one possibility right right <laughs> the ouija right. board teaches her yeah. Yeah. yeah captain howdy so what do you think about this question of moral possession and let's stick with the exorcist for now um why yeah. does anyone get possessed in particular
1: i think that's the big question of the exorcist is is Um, This seems like sort of a random attack. And I guess you could almost sort of connect it to the the sort of rhetorical impact of terrorism, that the the devil is like a terrorist. There's just like random acts of violence that are, you know, it's not entirely clear to what end. Um, But just like to to step back and give a tiny bit of background on the film, The Exorcist uh, comes out in 1973, directed by William Friedkin, um, adapted from a novel by Peter Blatty, who also wrote the script, which I imagine is probably a luxury and probably also a liability for for a filmmaker. Uh, it stars Linda Blair, Ellen Burstyn, Jason Miller, and Max von Sydow, uh, who just passed away. It um, doesn't have a lot of star power. I mean, Mox is, is famous from you know Swedish avant-garde, Ingmar Bergman cinema. Right. Um, but the film's really over budget really takes a long time to make and in spite of all that was a financial and critical success it's not usually the way it goes with movies that are (laughs) over budget and take forever to make um but it's the first horror movie to get a a best picture nomination it receives 10 academy award nominations uh and it wins two for adapted screenplay and sound mixing and I, i would say that the sound is is pretty does add to the chilling effect uh and just you know the movie it's about as a little girl who gets possessed her mother is a sort of posh actress acting a part of I think, like a faculty member uh at a, at a university in yeah Texas it's not clear School but it seems it's like, like it's uh-huh.
0: yeah administrator yeah. or faculty member seems like faculty member
1: yeah. yeah So yeah right uh and the movie just follows uh her growing exasperation trying to get her daughter regan uh treated because regan develops all these sort of scary Symptoms, cursing, y- urinating when not appropriate, <laughs> telling people they're going to die in space—these uh, sorts of things—and the medical establishment fails her. And even one of these doctors suggests, well, "Have you tried going to a priest? Because force of suggestion will, will, has been known to work." It's not actually really an exorcism, but you know, the the the, uh, the performativity of the ritual can and can force the the possessed or the afflicted to. Uh, keep following the rules of that game and give up the demon right,
0: right. the movie
1: pretty much makes it clear that the, the demon is real in, in many ways we're going to talk about this in a little bit uh but there's this growing exasperation and the mother of regan uh tries to recruit a swashbuckling good looking but tortured young jesuit priest who also is a expert in psychiatry and psychology to help her And when he takes his notes, he recruits finally and is able to get an official exorcism scheduled. And I won't, mean, this movie was made 40 years ago, but I I guess we won't have have too many spot pot spoilers (laughs) with the way it ends. Um, But suffice it to say, the exorcism doesn't go exactly as planned. What I want to kind of draw out for a second is the message of the film and maybe its sort of theological implications. So like, what do you see going on in terms of what this film is trying to communicate about demons the devil and and the things we've been talking about
0: yeah before i do that i want to mention a couple of things that came to mind in terms of that moral responsibility of the possessed um just a couple more examples one is the desert fathers who are attacked by demons because they retreat to the desert and that battle is staged as part of their struggle to achieve sanctity to achieve holiness and Mm -hmm. so in terms of are they responsible for being they aren't they aren't exactly possessed but they battle demons generally and so that's one type that we do have lingering in the background here Uh, and another is jesus going to the desert to be tempted which we talked about in a previous episode but we have just a little bit more uh we have a few more options in terms of how we think about who gets possessed and why which opens for me is Reagan possessed? Perhaps because she's not particularly bad. Is it her sort of youthful innocence that attracts the demon? And that would be yeah, a little yeah. bit more in line with. She's these the most other
1: innocent animals. little girl in the whole world. Yeah,
0: but I think if you really wanted to show that, you'd have her, you know, more pious. She'd be praying. Yeah, exactly. You know? it's,
1: it's, it's 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 you know yeah.
0: And you it's, don't. There's it's something. She wants a horse. Also, you know? Right. <laughs> right. But I think uh, that wouldn't work in a 1970s film. The, right. No one would be interested in her. I think the fact that she is pretty, other than her social class, she seems like a pretty normal girl. I think that's, yeah. that's the new innocence, right? But I think that yeah. because the conflict right. of the movie in terms of theologies of evil is about the confrontation between modernity on the one hand, science, and then this antiquated feeling, religion, Um, or at least that's my my take. So a few of the things that, like what's the theology or message of the film, right? A few things I want to tag, the first, this Orientalist opening sequence that we have, the association with a foreign land. Right, Mox is, Iraq, is, Iraq, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's this statue. And in later... Uh, so the, the, it, this movie is based on a book, which has some sequels. And we learn more about who this statue is supposed to be from those sequels, in case you're wondering yeah. where I'm grabbing this from. Pazazu right. is this Babylonian or Assyrian deity, and that's the statue who's discovered by Father Marin. And there's this long tradition within Christianity, but not exclusive to Christianity by any, by any means, of looking at foreign deities as demonic. Well, that's, for sure, you think that's for God? Sure, yeah. That's not God, that's the devil, right? So it's that move. And I think right, that's what's right. coming up here, the foreign devil is right. and we have a flash of this in one of the possession scenes later in the movie back to this mm-hmm. statue so we are supposed to make some sort of identification here between and, la-
1: and later cuts there's like there are various video releases of this and there are yeah. later versions that have more footage and in those later touched up versions like when uh, Regan's mom first goes up to the cellar, you can see mm-hmm. the, the Pazazu statue in the background, like, oh. so like which is a little bit like gilding lily, <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: that must be what the, some of the editors thought, at least in the version. So, like, thought, some right? restraint
1: here, guys. Yeah, come
0: on. <laughs> yeah. So um, you've also got the figure of Father Karas, whom you've pointed to already, who, because he's a, you know, he's trained in psychiatry, psychology on the one hand, and he's also a priest,
1: He's trained in boxing too. He's got all kinds of training. he's an
0: MMA star. Basically, he's got this. (laughs) He's a both and. You're welcome. Uh, He he helps stage in his character this religion versus science kind of battle. Or it's 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 not really a battle if you don't have a definitive. They both lose, you know. They both lose (laughs) exactly. So let's just call it a mashup, mainly. I guess. Uh, and then supporting that is his perform his gender performance of this empathetic yet vigorous masculinity, to show the soft side and the and the and the hard side together in this one character. He's our every, I mean, he is our. If we if we're looking for a Jesus here, I would argue that this is your Jesus. You're like for sure. He
1: contrasts. He contrasts a lot with with Father Marin who. Karras is like, oh, let me tell you, before they go into the exorcism, he's like, I've been studying this girl for a little bit. I have some background. Here are the facts of the case. And Father Marin's like, forget about it. All I need to know is that this is the devil. And Father Marin dies. He doesn't get the job done. Right? Right. Father Karras is the one who understands and cares about the situation. And he's the one who's able to, though not through the official parameters of the ritual script, is the one who's able to make a difference.
0: Absolutely. Right. I think. Another key theme from this this film that helps us understand insofar as it's coherent and we we should talk about <laughs> to what degree we think it's coherent is class. this yeah. is a rich people problem uh this is we've got you know this famous as you put it this this posh actress right this movie star we have a Georgetown setting, the charming cocktail conversation, the party where Regan, you know, urinates and, and predicts a death. The, her first marked instantiation of, of demonic possession happens right yeah. there. And I think that's pointing to some larger social problems that we'll talk more about. But getting right. to the devil for a second, who is the devil in this film? More powerful than science, sometimes, interested yeah. in possession, but deeply psychologically inflected, Playing on the on Father Karras' guilt about whether he's cared for his mother proper, his aging mother properly or not, that feels very modern. That feels very psychological. That feels, feels very yeah. Freudian, maybe. Yeah. Um, but interest that interest in guilt it also feels very Catholic. Um, and the the sort of crux of the devil for me, sorry. Uh, is that the devil appears to be real. Yeah, yeah, the very genre of film makes you able to to gaze at him in a way that reading historical witness testimony from a canonization record from the Middle Ages just doesn't get you there, right? The film doesn't, is like, this It's is, different
1: when you see the devil. On, you're on the seeing it there. for
0: yourself, right? You're not reading this. You're not hearing about this. You're seeing some of it. And at the same time, you have these exceptions. There are funny inconsistencies about the devil's knowledge in particular. Why is it that he knows all about the priest's mother and can imitate her voice perfectly, but doesn't know her maiden name? Uh, yeah. Why is it oh, that he can't seem to recognize the difference between holy water, which should, you know, according to the exorcist history of and legends, Holy water should really hurt. Holy water should drive him out, should be a problem as opposed to tap water. And so the priest uses tap water at one point, the the demon, the demon flinches and it's like, "Haha, gotcha. But then it doesn't show that the devil is, it, you would think that would lead to the fraud accusation that possession is right. either real or it's a fraud or perhaps in later periods, we get the medicalization that, Oh, you're just, you're, you have a psychological problem or something, but we, there's no unveiling of the, the wizard behind the curtain here that happens. So that is interesting. Yeah. Um, but I think this build, the kind of inconsistency here, makes a little bit more sense when you think about the cultural context of the late 60s yeah. shakeup in institutions and culture. Um, one example of that would be the women's movement. Here we have our, our essentially single woman film star and there's a scene in which we watch her on set playing the part of this faculty member during a student protest of some, of some sort. And her line, which I love, is, hey, she grabs the microphone the, um, from the students who are, who are protesting. And she says, hey, come on, we're all concerned with human rights for God's sake, but the kids who want to get an education here have a right too. And this is the ultimate like hey, guys, kind of bougie institutional moment that shows that very, well, very white, right, emphasis on behavior, on how you say something, uh, mm-hmm. how you behave, and dismissal of radical politics.
1: Yeah, this is the 70s, not the 60s, right? Exactly. Uh, the faculty are starting to change their views.
0: Yeah. What stands out to you here? Um, yeah. in terms of this kind of institutional cultural stuff. Do you think that makes a difference in how we interpret who the devil is?
1: Yeah, I think it does, um, because I think one of the themes that I see throughout this possession literature and cinema and et cetera is that setting matters a lot and that this sort of dramatic backdrop is important for how we learn about the devil. And the world of The Exorcist is a sort of paranoid one. As you mentioned, um, the one of the protagonists is a single mother, and so this signals that institutions like the family are falling apart. We see her domestic strife, or not quite domestic, because this argument's happening over a long distance conversation with someone, a sort of a, a an abandoning partner who's in who's living it up with his girlfriend in Italy. So there's like this con- concern about family values under attack. There is this sense you know, there's a church desecration. I guess the devil did that. I don't I don't really know. I, that's that's another strange moment in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this and and a police detective, it literally says is is asking one of the one of the priests and asking is is there a war on the church going on? And so this another key institution seems to be falling by the wayside or falling under attack is oh, entitled the church. There's a, so there's a war
0: on Christmas. Got it. Okay. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right.
1: You mentioned uh, the women's movement, um, and this sort of uh, this sort of ironically staged student sit-in in as sort of the film within the film for The Exorcist. And we're in this post watergate moment or Watergate you know squarely Watergate moment, where the conflict in vietnam has has sort of changed the the moral landscape of the country. but there's also this Nixon law and order backlash to the civil rights movement, this idea that it's time to return to policing and harsh sentencing as a way of bringing back the America of the nineteen fifties because the civil rights movement as the sort of silent rhetoric went, went too far. Um, And so this this paranoid landscape is informed, I think, by that concern for retaining middle-class, upper-class white privilege in a world that's starting to fracture. Um, And I think that sort of corresponds to the very posh white Georgetown vision of Catholicism that we get here too, um, which, has room for a kind of realistic supernatural depict, depiction of Satan or the devil, but is also this vehicle for trying to resist the, the changes of this world, trying to retain some sort of traditional privileged structure. Um, and this is the moment in the 1970s where there's a marked downturn uh, among the baby boomer. Generation in attendance to mainline denomination Protestant churches, which were sort of the lifeblood of American Christianity uh, up to this point. There's also a rise in more charismatic Pentecostal churches happening, especially on the West Coast, that, you know, churches that take seriously things like possession um, and that, that matches with themes of the Exorcist, but in a very different kind of uh, church culture. Um, the movie focuses on the Catholic Church, which is able to be presented as this kind of austere institution that's down at its heels. Um, Father Karras, Damien Karras, almost all the other priests, except for, for, for Max von Sydow's character, are struggling with their faith, losing their faith. And we get that sense of stumbling in, in, in the, the fact that the official exorcism ceremony fails with Max von Sydow's character dying mid-ritual institutional religion also, it fails, but it fails after the mainstream medical establishment has failed. So all these bastions of security and meaning and well-being in the movie are having a really hard time. And this is, like a, this is a world without much certainty or support, except for, as, as you said, this kind of vigorously masculine yet empathetic priest figure who... Ha- he draws from both those worlds, is in some sense, bringing together what's good from both those worlds in in, in sort of uh, having a deeper spiritual tradition and moral tradition from the church, but also being empirical and critical from this, the science establishment. But at the end of the day, it's more his sort of, his kind of charismatic presence that is the only thing that can be relied on. His charismatic masculine presence is the only thing that can be relied on to so get through the emergency that is is the exorcist. Um, yeah does, does that make
0: sense? It does i I wonder about the the order in which various institutions are relied upon to provide the answer for this possession, the way that we start yeah. with medicine, it's like, well, that's something we know. that's scientific. Yeah. Can, yeah. That's just safe it feels safer. And the last stop on the train is, let's go to the most magic y. The witch of, doctor i believe witch, she said yeah exactly <laughs> right um it's very much her last her her last resort to save the child she's, she's like fine she she looks a mess it's one of the better parts of the performance i think because she's kind of smoking up a storm um yeah after the she's hospital she's got like a handkerchief
1: and, she's got like, she's yeah. scarved you know like she's oh yeah, she's, yeah. it's so good she's got um, shiners um, from being punched in the face by her demonically possessed oh right adolescent. Oh, oh yeah um, so that's when
0: you turn to the church for your answer. I think that's yeah. already showing that there's no way in this in this cinematic universe, which includes all these cultural forces, there's no way that the the symbol of the institutional church on its own is going to solve the problem. And that's why that character, you know, has to die. Mox's character has to has to die, right? Mm-hmm. But and spoiler alert, maybe fast forward through the next ten seconds here. At the end, when you have our our perfectly masculine but soft character, um, Father Damien uh, takes on the demon in the end. And, gets him in the
1: ring. He goes a few rounds with him in the ring.
0: Yeah, he does. And then and then he he, he dies. brings all this
1: training to bear.
0: <laughs> right, but then he self sacrifices. It's this. It is this Christological moment, isn't it, yeah. Klaus? <laughs> for I mean, sure and i do think you, how do you, you see that? this a
1: ton in like these this sort of uh this new wave of hollywood revival in the 60s and 70s that there's a sort of an obsession with uh christ figure moments mm-hmm. it's, it's like paul newman and cool and luke you know the sort of the stuff of yeah 11th grade english classes but yeah <laughs> but oh, yeah no absolutely. i think it's t- i think you're totally right i mean i think that's that's totally what is what's going on here um and it's this it's this reincarnation of the the, cr- the christ moment
0: right but this isn't your mom's Catholic Jesus, as we pointed out, I think that's what saves it from being a kind of uh, religious movie in any sense at all, having a theological message that's at all in line with Catholicism. It's not, he, he, it borrows from, and then excerpts what it doesn't like, I think. So right. getting back to that question of, what's, what's the message of this, of this movie?
1: So right. there's also like that idea though, like the short ending versus the long ending of the Gospel of Mark, where in the short ending, J- Jesus is just kind of just dead. <laughs> <You know>? um, <laughs> yep. The long ending, the they, end, they, they, they rush off, off. They went with terrified. the short ending.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like if it doesn't provide a perfect solution, the movie at least invites us to consider this possibility that our world is vulnerable to demonic attack. We may not have a perfect, you know, Christian or Catholic solution to that, but Demonic attack is is real. You can watch it happening, and that gets to that idea of genre again of the film of the of the mm-hmm. um, the window into this world that you see so it it brings a certain kind of realism to this idea of demonic possession and attack mm-hmm. and that idea, as you pointed out already, retains relevance among maybe not so much on the Catholic side, but certainly among charismatic, or at least the mainstream Catholicism, but certainly among charismatic Pentecostal churches around the world, even today, through that concept of spiritual war- warfare, which I should say is larger than just demonic possession. With the idea For that sure. there are invisible forces, both good and evil, that give real meaning to uh, existence, give real meaning to our lives. And the what spiritual, what Pentecostal spirituality gives you the ability to do is to, on the one hand, incarnate that through, you know, holy rollers shaking in the aisles in your own body, but to recognize it's, it's both performative, but it's also knowing that knowledge of there is this other world there. Yeah. Um, but speaking as historians here, would you say, Klaus, that certain time periods are more vulnerable to demonic attack, demonic possession than others? does this phenomenon kind of pop up in certain time periods um, and less so in others? And if that's the case, then what would you say about modernity in particular? Is modernity the demon-possessed age par excellence?
1: Yeah, I think to, to think about that question, we might be best served by going back a little bit. Um, I think one of the sort of major stereotypes of the past antiquity or the medieval period is that these were times that were more superstitious and more prone to considering things like demonic possession as realities than, you know, the the enlightened, disenchanted modern period. Mm, Hashtag the dark ages, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, exactly. Um, And uh, medieval historian Alain Boreau reports, though, that the population of demons really seems to have decreased by the mid-medieval period. That there was not a lot in the historical record that points to the agency of demons uh, in what we think of as the hashtag Dark Ages. I uh, was worried for a
0: second that you were going to start referring to demon censuses or something. It was like where is this coming <laughs> from? But yeah, just I keep get King David out record. of this.
1: Keep King David out of this. All right. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, by the 14th century, there, is, there starts to be, another. you know, the census shows that there does start to be an uptick in the demonic population just from what we see in things like canonization trials and, and, and uh, witch hunting guides and things like this. But it must also be noted that elite members of the church hierarchy were very scrupulous about screening out cases of demonic possession and making sure that this is really what was going on. Because as we even see from the gospels, there's a lot of overlap between insanity, between medical conditions, um, between someone just being asleep for a really long time. You know? um, and so that there's, a, there's a, in in the the Catholic, the Western Latin church, there is a great deal of attention and what we almost think of proto-science being used to weed out fake demonic possession cases from real ones. And there's also an incentive to play down the demonic possession narrative uh, to ward off more sort of populistic, popular versions of the religion from gaining fo- a foothold uh, and really emphasizing morality and spirituality as the key criteria for for uh, sainthood, for example. Okay, um, is that, because, not, is that yeah.
0: because there's something inherently chaotic, would you say, about demonic possession? Um, is that... Does it automatically have a more populist edge to it than these other forms of Christianity of Catholicism? Is that I what think you're saying? What,
1: I think I think you're right that that's that's definitely part of it. And I think the other thing is that uh, we get this problem where if we they really give into all of these cases, given to calling all these cases instances of demonic possession, this might lend itself to a more regionally possessed form of Catholicism where it's, it's localized. It's like, oh, well, like, well, the really important thing is that this saint exercised these demons here uh, versus yeah. the really important thing is we need to follow what the Curia in Rome says is important for us, <laughs> right? Got so it. It, it kind of makes the, the religion a little bit more obsessed with thaumaturgy and magic and, and very mm-hmm. local events and local histories versus a more universal perspective, I would say.
0: Yeah, yeah. And thaumaturgy just being the kind of wonder working doing miracles of some kind, something that looks like magic.
1: Exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. So they would use a set of criteria for, um, for evaluating demonic possession and, and, you know, the, the, the lists vary, but some pretty, uh, some some sort of common items on it would be like knowing foreign languages that you, you know, you're not supposed to know, I guess, you know, that, that that's a weird thing, <laughs> levitating, making strange noises, bad odors, things that seem to be living under your skin. So it's kind of like this special, a lot of special effects makeup things here. Classic, Um, classic. Vomiting strange objects like nails. Speaking without moving your lips, this kind of ventriloquizing thing. Different tones of voice that you wouldn't normally have. Like if you're like Mm -hmm. a little kid and you speak with a baritone voice, that's freaky. Um, And so this disjunction between the the, the voice and the body is supposed to evince a separate speaking subject uh, that the, the human body is passive, maybe unmoved by pain, but there's this kind of foreign voice that's speaking through it. But even though church authorities are trying to be really careful about what they call demon possession in this time, there's a whole set of theological thinkers and philosophers who are developing a worldview that is able to give demons a foothold in the explanations people are making about what's going on in the embodied experiences of normal people um, or people who are at the margins of society. There's a, there's a kind of, there's something else happening in in the intellectual history that is pushing against that cautiousness from the, the, the church hierarchy.
0: Yeah. There's a new intellectual current that's centered around the study of natural philosophy that's informing theology at this time in medieval Europe in which the, the notion of who the human person is, especially in, in relation to God, right, which is sometimes referred to as theological anthropology, plays a pivotal role. Theologians are thinking about human beings as kind of salad bowl combinations of, you know, body and soul and spirit together, and then trying to understand, you know, how those parts interact on the one hand, And looking in and getting at that question by looking at certain phenomena like sleepwalking, which is really kind of fun to read about, dreaming, (laughs) uh, insanity, and of course, possession. Right? How does the body and the soul and the spirit fit together in each of these instances? What can we learn about this composition of the human person through thinking through these various uh, phenomena? And Sleepwalking presents a model for how to interpret demonic possessions. You're going to get at the possession part through looking at sleepwalking in particular because the body is being moved by some other impetus than what's normal, and the normal functioning would be that deliberative intention of the higher end of the human faculties. Um, And this means that the human body, which these thinkers thought of as being powered by the humors and, you know, humoral theory and all that, and spirits in anticipation of the idea of the nervous system with this electrical current. But that's how they were thinking about the body moving. Mm -hmm. And this was this other way of the body moving, not in the usual sort of conscious fashion, but something quite different uh, takes over, if you will. And that idea of Mm -hmm. taking over is what builds the bridge between sleepwalking on the one hand and demonic possession on the other. You've got somebody else at the steering wheel, right? And if that's Mm -hmm. the case... Other spirits could theoretically get inside the person, other than you know, you're sleepwalking. If you have this different composition that's more vulnerable, right, more open, uh, this model of the human person, then these other spirits could get inside and access the corporeal on the one hand, the bodily, and the mental faculties on the other. There's a real danger there.
1: Wait, so let me get this straight you're telling me that these people are interested in what we might call science, and that they're the science that they're doing actually plays into beliefs and even the social reality of demonic possession.
0: Yeah, that's it. But it's also no accident that both the hunt for witches and the exorcism of the possessed intensify during this particular time period when Europe is being torn apart by reformations and violent political restructuring one english author wrote in 1598 that god had seen fit to allow possessions to become more dramatic in his day because it was an incredulous cynical age in which christians needed to be really scared back into their religion scared back into piety but that's not the only reason possession was attributed to one's rivals so protestants versus catholics everybody's calling each other well you're the possessed ones no you're the possessed ones etc and exorcism also became theopolitical. A successful, and what I mean by that is a successful exorcism was supposed to demonstrate the truth value of one's own confessional allegiance. So this coming together of the theological with the political spheres. Demonstration is key. This idea of proof, if you will, showing forth. So possession and exorcism took, took place, therefore, in a spectacular fashion, in the fashion of a spectacle.
1: Okay, so what I think I'm hearing is that these two things go together somehow. The almost theatrical quality possessions and exorcisms and political struggle. This is true in all the moments we've discussed so far, like in Jesus's very public exorcisms in the Gospel of Mark. They set him up as a rival to the scribes and priests of the temple. Exorcism in the early modern period expresses confessional and political struggles. And of course, demonic possession still makes for cinematic entertainment in the late 20th century, today even, uh, but also entertainment that is reacting to and channeling cultural and political anxieties. Travis, if exorcism is a kind of theological, political theater, how should we think about the way these events get scripted?
0: That's a great question. I think we can think about the scripting in a couple, of, at least two different senses. On the one hand, you have a kind of linguistic scripting. Certain languages keep appearing in these accounts, and this is in several different time periods. One is speaking in those foreign languages that you've never studied, and that's key. And to, to what extent you've never studied it,
1: so who's gonna prove it? It's like such a weird thing. It's
0: it is a weird. It's it's weird to count it as evidence in that kind of even in that early the early modern settings in which you see it. Yeah. it doesn't seem self-evident to our ears in the 21st century that someone couldn't be secretly studying a language. That doesn't seem so hard.
1: Someone's on Duolingo being like, this is, this is what I want to use for the, for the demon possessions. Like, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Exactly.
0: Or like learning a few phrases is not really, yeah. you know, yeah. superhuman here. And that's exactly what's at, at stake. What counts as the category of the natural and what counts as supernatural as evidence of supernatural intervention in the world. So, in this linguistic thing, we've got speaking of foreign languages, um, and this shows up in Ludin in the request that one of the nuns speak in Hebrew, right? And the demon, it seems, if you, have a, if you approach this from a cynical perspective, that the, this isn't really the, the devil himself working things out in these women, that the, when the linguistic capacity isn't there and it's been asked for by the exorcists, the nun will go into spasmodic fits or refuse to speak or say in Latin, well, God does not will this or something. Uh, various exit strategies to avoid that knowledge that's supposed to be there, that's expected to be there. And I think that's what we're trying to outline yeah. here. What are the expectations for, in the scripting here that's linguistic and what can actually be produced in the moment in that, in that live TV <laughs> setting, that live theater yeah. setting. Right, right. So you've got various foreign languages that, that, up here there. Hebrew is a really important one. Latin is, of course, centrally important in
1: part, Scottish, you know, Scottish. Scottish needs to show of... up
0: because it's weird, because it's foreign <laughs> to France. Right. So I guess they mean, they, mean Ludan, they mean Gaelic.
1: I mean Ludon, they meant Gaelic. Yeah. Know. Um, yeah. I
0: think so. The land, but you know, that's even better that they don't know the the lame, the name of the language, that they just call it from its from its region. I think that's perfectly yeah. representative of what it symbolizes for them, the foreign, the strange. Yeah. Whereas Latin has a certain familiarity and you would think in a convent, Latin wouldn't, L- Latin wouldn't doesn't count. prove exactly. <laughs> it doesn't show the same kind of knowledge of, a, unexpected knowledge in a certain sense. But what it does do is it fits in with this theme of inversion. The satanic is the reverse, the mirror opposite, the twisted mirror opposite in, in, a, in a fun house of the mm-hmm. divine. And so because Latin is the, language of the church, it's not the spoken language of France, certainly in the early modern period, this is the language that's spoken by the holy people, the scripture comes to you in this way, the mass is said, the pr- but also to our point here, again, a little bit of a cynical perspective, those are the, that's also the language of the Psalms and the prayers that these nuns are saying every day of their lives. So while that doesn't assume a deep knowledge of being able to compose a treatise, you know, words and phrases are gonna be there, But it fulfills other functions than than those foreign languages do. This is the, I would argue, is this inversion trope. But script Mm -hmm. matters beyond this kind of linguistic game of proof. It is also this act of the unwritten script of actions and behaviors uh, Mm -hmm. that's known Mm -hmm. to all the participants in advance. Perhaps most tellingly in the Loudin account, We know that there are published accounts of similar activities. And I mentioned earlier in the pod about some of this that are out there in the world. And because of that, there are kind of social expectations of who are the players? How does this work when you've got a demonic possession and you're making a spectacle of it and you're going to have these exorcists and they're going to ask certain kinds of questions and not ask other kinds of questions? And what are the right kinds of responses that help keep everyone in that same worldview, following the rules of the game? almost. yeah. And so that's the other way that I think scripting works in this theological, political theater that you've been uh, asking about here. But there's yeah. one more thing I want to throw in, and that's this idea from the New Testament. As This is the command of Jesus. So how do, how do exorcisms work in the Gospel of Mark? Generally... Jesus says, get out of there, to the demon. Directly there's a lot of rebuking. The there's yeah, there's rebuking. rebuking. Uh, oh, so yeah. those demons are so bad. You're being bad. <laughs> get out of there. But it's, it's so short. It's like this imperative command. Um, you like, hit gone. the road, Jack. Jack. Hit the know? road, Jack. <laughs> and then it just works, right? There's the, this invisible power that's being invoked. Um, and that's what's astonishing the audience is. The scribes sometimes in some of the accounts where the people are around and it's causing murmuring to happen because yeah. uh, the expectation around exorcism apparently was that the kind we talk about where you're invoking the other power as opposed to the kind where you're using your own and in some of the accounts for Jesus when Jesus does the exorcism, it seems like he's not invoking another power it's this I say it and it's done kind of thing right, right. and so as we think about the theater and how the theater of exorcism works. One of the modes in which this script goes is the is the magic mode. You say it and it happens. Right. So what right. about from? So we've talked a little bit about these scripts and these modalities in the early modern period at Luton. We've talked just briefly about a New Testament example. But what about what happens in the in the Reformation? How do yeah. we yeah. yeah? How do we think about this scripting in the Reformation?
1: Well, one thing I want to note just about the Ludon example really quickly is that <clears throat> it's interesting that the fact that this was so scripted and that everyone knew the script didn't make it suspicious. It made it more, you know, effective. Well, it <laughs> There hurt. wasn't this it's like, oh, like we're just copying this from someone else. It's like, right. yeah, like I can't believe it's happening again. <laughs> um, yeah,
0: and, and it seems like it could have been interpreted exactly the opposite way as right. because there's a precedent, this is copying as opposed to because there's a precedent this fits in and is therefore recognizable as possession and is therefore authentic absolutely
1: right right um so there's a you know in in uh, the catholic context a very elaborate compendia of exorcism ritual ceremonies develop uh as a way of Addressing these different, or in, in, sort of adapting these different scripts for for different uh, performative speech acts for for dealing with with, with possession, in uh, the Protestant side, uh, because of the the uh, very familiar claim of allegiance to Scripture alone or sola scriptura, uh, the the form of exorcism was very minimal and instead of smells and bells, you have a lot more the fun of fasting and prayer for long periods of time and meditation and re- recitation and reading of the biblical texts, the synoptic texts. So there's a very much an investment in doubling down on what the, the canonical scripture says instead of developing new rituals and new approaches for the, the new waves of demons. It's like, no, we just have to get back to the the bedrock of scripture. is there a sense in which though that that
0: the bible itself the scripture itself functions as for protestants at that time in their uh exorcism rituals as a kind of magic object
1: yeah oh yeah for sure and okay. I, and that that extends to the, the present right there it's not as if they're getting rid of magic you know it's just it's okay. uh it's governed in a more austere way perhaps but yeah there are sacred objects like the bible that also seem to have a kind of power of presence and a power of relationship to these moments that yeah you can see like we're, we you know magic is still going on um, okay yeah but be, through this if we, the, the Bible sort of gives us access to one of the big problems of exorcism that we see from from uh, the. The first century of the common era to the 17th century to to the exorcist in 1973 is this problem of like the devil tells the truth and in the reformation in the confessional uh, age of confessional strife and in europe being torn apart both protestants many protestants and many catholics believe that the, in the course of exorcism in the course of de- demonic possession that what the devil said was the truth and we've seen the demons in mark confessing to jesus's identity uh we see we talked about this a few episodes ago where the devil is very adept at quoting scripture there was on the one hand a sense that the devil and demons would tell the truth when questioned um and this is really drawing on and especially mark and and some of the uh the the synoptic gospels Mm -hmm. this runs up against another another sort of stream or another 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 train of thought in the new testament uh from from the the Gospel of John, which is from a totally different set of sources than the Synoptic Gospels, and in this the devil never tells the truth. Again, this is also interesting. We talked this before. In John, there isn't really a lot of exorcism per se anyway, but there's also the sense that the devil isn't someone who's going to point out who the Messiah is. The devil is the father of lies, and so when. The exorcism is being pointed to as this authoritative event for establishing a kind of politics or a kind of theology. You always have room for dissenters to say, but wait, other places it says that the devil just speaks lies. So how can we rely on this this event as authenticating anything? How do we know this is really happening? Maybe the devil is counterfeiting this whole thing. Maybe this isn't even a real possession. The devil's involved, but it's all an illusion. Tensions within the New Testament break down or can cause misfires in this kind of performative.
0: Oh, okay. So that stability that we might've thought we had by having the demon say true things in the course of an exorcism doesn't actually give us that proof that's irrefutable from a New Testament perspective. Is that right? Right. Yeah, no,
1: that's right. That's right. Um, We've been talking about this as, as a kind of theatrical event. We've been talking about the script. But I think it's also important to talk about the staging and the setting. Uh, and so one of our sources for uh, interpreting the possession at Loudon is uh, Michel de Certeau And in his treatment of Loudon, he argues that possession, demonic possession is essentially an urban phenomenon. Whereas witchcraft happens in the sticks, it's rural. Yet these things go together in many instances. A, a sw- sorcerer or a witch is the one who gets someone possessed. Um, and determining whether someone is possessed randomly or possessed by a witch or a sorcerer is really important for assigning more responsibility. Um, so it's, 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 I think it's important to interrogate this point of setting and location a little bit.
0: Okay, so going a little deeper in that question of urban versus rural, does that city space create a grander stage for the demonic theater, the spectacle we've been talking about, uh, and if so, is that in part because that political power is centered, for the most part, in these cities. So you're, you're sort of in the neighborhood of mm-hmm. the governor of whoever of these of these nobles who are in charge of your early modern French town, for example. Right. Um, right. Okay. So if exorcism is political theater. The audience and maybe the participants need to be close to that center of power for it to have any real stakes in the larger society
1: right, right, and that like again contributes to this kind of theatrical spectacle model of uh, religious theater we 're seeing in it, but beyond this town country divide it, it just really seems like scenery counts for a lot in these stories, and I think about like how the graveyard is this is this backdrop in in Mark 5 with the demoniac and the story of St. Eve, the burial grounds are sites of spiritual power, either saintly or demonic. And I keep getting the sense that there's a cinematic quality to these narratives. There's something about these stories and their settings that really lends itself to the kind of storytelling that we get in The Exorcist. I read Mark 5 and, and, and the story of the demoniac, and I can't help but think of scenes of of grave robbing from the Universal Studios horror films from the 1930s, like Frankenstein. And I just also keep wondering how this theatrical dimension of possession and exorcism relates to the problem of divine justice we keep bumping into. We've been talking about politics a lot, but we need to also think about the big, the big cosmic sovereign who's always lurking in the background.
0: All along, we've been tracking this problem of responsibility, Is evil simply a human choice, or is it part of the cosmic architecture? And if the latter, is this purely a part of God's will, or is it something God has limited control over? The way scholar John Levinson talks about Yahweh as periodically or continuously struggling against the dragons of chaos.
1: With demonic possession, evil is personified and incarnated in the flesh of people who are usually on the sidelines of social power children, unmarried women, the poor. And so we're, we're sort of moving away from the, the, the large scale cosmic enemies and, and looking at something more mundane, but maybe all the more disturbing for it. So this possession may occur as a result of bad choices, the malice of others, or so the theory goes. But we also see the familiar claims about why God is letting this happen.
0: Right, possession can work as a force of punishment or as a way to snap atheists and the complacent out of their spiritual slumber by rendering the invisible forces of spirituality, of demons, visible. It's a way of re-enchanting religious life when it gets boring and loses its teeth or when the forces of modernity show up at the door.
1: Right. Possession speaks to human susceptibility to outside spiritual influence that can either be demonic, but also crucially, it can also be the Holy Spirit who enters the poorest subject. That's where we get St. Paul affirming that it is no longer he, but Christ who lives inside him. So in this way, demonic possession both points at this larger dilemma of divine responsibility we've been keeping tabs on, but also to an important modality of Christian ideas about the human subject as spirit-charged for better or ill. The vulnerable, prone human being seems to be basic and crucial for Christian theology. Acknowledging this keeps us continuously questioning what divine justice means when power and responsibility are so asymmetrical.
0: Next time on Seven Heads, Ten Horns, we
1: go cosmic and
0: address the possibility of dualism and the communities that have affirmed a dualistic struggle between light and darkness at different moments in history as well as how Christians are at once enthralled by this Star Wars version of history, but also try to suppress and repurpose
1: it. See you next time. All right, see you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Ward, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners
0: like you. Thank you.